We'll get started in a moment. Tommy is here for Sports Fix Thursday. Quick word about Window Nation. If you're in the market for new windows, 866-90-NATION, windownation.com. Free estimate when you mention my name. That can be an online virtual estimate, or you can allow them into your home. They follow all CDC guidelines. 50% off all windows right now is the deal. You're not going to beat that anywhere with no money down, no interest, and no payments for two full years. You can't beat it. Windownation.com or 86690Nation. I promise you it's worth it. Before you call another window company, call Windownation and at the very least get a free estimate. You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. A sports fix Thursday, Tommy, from that fortress of solitude out in Frederick, Maryland. I'm in studio. Aaron's out in Vegas now. He's already moved. He's still helping out with the podcast um, and involved in it. Hope everybody is well. I'm going to just start with this because I've known my partner here for, we always do this, I've known you for 15, 16, 17 years, probably 16 years, somewhere in that neighborhood. We did a show together, as most of you know, for seven and a half years together in the middays on 980. Um, and when I saw the news of Tom Seaver passing away yesterday, by the way, at the very young age, really young, too young of 75 years old, the first person I thought of Tommy was you, because I know that Tom Seaver was your guy. Like everybody's got a guy, you know, from when they were younger and Seaver and those Mets, um, but Seaver in particular was your guy. I thought about you. So I'm sure yesterday was one of those days where, you know, it's not like you know him well, but he was a, he was a part of your life in many ways. And I, and I know that you were sad yesterday. The most important sports figure of my lifetime. I mean, it, 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 my personal life. Uh, he was, growing up a Mets fan, he was the first, moment you really felt a sense of pride as a Mets fan where you weren't ridiculed where you could look at other fans and say okay well he's our guy you know you may be good but we got Tom Seaver I mean he was a rookie won 16 games as a rookie won 16 games the following year both with losing teams you know teams like seventh eighth place teams uh and then he wins 25 games in the 1969 year where they wind up winning the World Series. But he was, I can't think of a player, I can't think of a Yankee besides Mickey Mantle in my lifetime that was equally as beloved in New York as Tom Seaver was. That's saying a hell of a lot, you know, in a city that's had, I mean, so many icons, whether it was DiMaggio or Mantle. Well, Demiaggio before my time. Right. Okay. You know? Yeah. Of course. Mantle. And, and with Mantle being the only caveat there. Uh, yeah. Other than that, I mean, Seaver was. I mean, you would not believe how emotional, and the the departure of Seaver was in '77 when he was traded to the Reds, and how that that was such a wild part, of, a wild uh, summer, because you had the uh, you had the uh, Bronx Zoo going on with Reggie. You had the Son of Sam going right. on, and then you had Seaver going on, uh, and his he was in a war with the owner of the Mets over his contract. And in the papers, 
you had Dick Young, the premier sports writer in the country for the Daily News, ripping Seaver every day. Then you had Mike Lupica, the new young sports columnist for the news, ripping Dick Young, and Pete Hamill, <laughs> the news columnist in the paper, ripping Dick Young. So you had a pissing contest going on in the Daily News every day leading up to the Tom Seaver trade. And when Seaver traded, that's when I filed my conscientious objector status with the Mets, and I said, I'm out. I'm out until, until uh, they get new owners. And thankfully, it only took three years before they wound up getting new owners and were sold the team. But uh, he... Tell, I mean, tell this story, Tommy, because I remember it vaguely, about him coming into town and you getting a chance to meet him, and I think that you hit against him pitching in some sort of media event or something. Well, in 1989, I think he had been retired for maybe two years or so at that point. Uh, American Express was doing a traveling baseball art show, going around the country, various art museums, displaying baseball art, paintings, sculptures, things like that. And they hired Seaver to be the spokesman. So when it came to Baltimore, I was at the Baltimore Sun then, and I was still a news reporter, not a sports writer. Uh, To promote it, they invited members of the media to come hit against Seaver at Memorial Stadium. Well, it rained like hell that day, so they brought it inside into the batting cage under the stadium. And I was signed up to do it, and I went to the batting cage for a week, two weeks, (laughs) at Rocky Gorge, Uh up on 29, every day. And what speed were you taking? Oh, I I could hit, at that point, 80 miles an hour. Wow. That's impressive. I mean, mean, not necessarily. You got to swing before that thing comes out of that, uh, out of the chute. Yeah, that's a timing. Thing. Yeah. I mean, if you do it enough, you've got it figured out. Right. You know, and I was doing it enough. And I wasn't blasting it. I was making contact, which is all I really wanted. Of course. You know, I didn't want to embarrass myself. But, you know, so they bring it into the tunnel. And Elrod Hendricks is the catcher uh, who was uh, a coach for the Orioles at the time, former catcher form. And the great thing about this, years later, I became very close to Elrod when I wound up covering the Orioles. Uh, but uh, there were about 20 guys, 20 people before me, and I, the, the, the sound of the ball exploding in the mitt was deafening. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this ball must be going 100 miles an hour. How am I ever going to hit it? And nobody's getting swings on it, you know? And yeah. I, I was not a good baseball player. I was, I was a Little League baseball player, and I didn't play baseball in high school. I did track and field. I threw the shot put in discus. I was an okay baseball player, but far from good. Uh, but I thought I was ready for this. So everyone that's before me is, is getting up there and not doing that well. So I'm, I'm like the last one. Uh, and so I get in the, in the, into the box, and the, he throws the first pitch. The ball comes in, and I can see it, which has shocked me. I could see the ball. So I check my swing. And Elrod Hendricks says, good check. <laughs> really? <Huh. laughs> you know, a, that had to be everything right there. That, that was it. I mean, I was all full of confidence. <laughs> the next pitch comes in, and I foul it off. I get, I get contact. I get wood on the ball. So I'm feeling even better. The next pitch comes in, 
and I managed to hit what would have been a dribbler ground ball to second. Still? If we were on the field. Yes, I'm, I'm elated. So Seaver yells to Elrod, well, we know what he likes. Let's see what he doesn't like. <laughs> so I yelled back to Seaver, I've been going to the batting cage for a couple of weeks. I'm ready for this. <laughs> and what, <laughs> what, a, what, what a moron. What did he so, throw? So he throws the ball, and I see it. It's right in front of me like, like, a, like a, a pumpkin. And I go to swing. And that thing drops. And when I swing, it's down by my ankles. And everybody bursts out laughing. <laughs> and Seaver yells at me, I bet they didn't have that pitch at the batting cage. <laughs> and then he wound up signing that ball for me later that night at a, at a reception at the art museum. So, I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it doesn't get much better than that. It's like playing in a game. With, the only thing better than that would have been playing on the Mets with Seaver, for crying out loud. Right. So, I mean, it, it, it was a, a, a valuable moment. I was, I was at so many Seaver moments. Uh, I was there in 83 when he got traded back to the Mets and was the opening day starter against Steve Carlton, and I was at Shea for that. And the walk-in from the bullpen after his warm-up was as, as chilling a, a chilling a moment in terms of excitement as I've ever felt. I was I was there for when they retired his number on Tom Seaver Day. I was still working at the Baltimore Sun, uh, and my buddy Pete Malenkovic, who was a big Mets fan, I managed to, to uh, talk the Mets into giving me and Pete press credentials. God, oh, I should they should have never done it to me. I wasn't a sports writer. I had no business getting credentials, but I did. For me and my buddy, who wasn't even, didn't even work for the paper, right? Uh, and he brings his camera. He pretty, you know, he, he was a photographer, so he had good equipment. So not only do we manage to get into the game, into the press box, I managed to sneak us onto the field. We didn't have field access passes, but there we were on the field, maybe twenty feet from where Seaver and his family were sitting on the field for the ceremony. And I remember Jay Horowitz, the Mets PR guy, this is before I ever knew him, looking over at us and thinking, who are these guys? But he was so busy, he, he couldn't do anything about it. I was, at the, I was at the Hall of Fame when he got inducted in 92. Uh, Rigo had been inducted the day before in Canton. Oh. I covered that, drove from Canton to Cooperstown the next day, and then covered the Seaver Hall of Fame. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, he was, he's the most important sports figure in my life, he was. Yeah, I, 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 I knew was, that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he made it, he made it, you proud to be a Mets fan. I mean, it is, there's such a sense of pride. Uh, and it, it, I mean, it was emotional for me when, because, you know, when he died, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm going back to those moments in my childhood and how it felt to uh, watch Seaver pitch instead of watching a clown show. The Mets were a perennial, you know, last place team until Seaver got there. That '69 Mets team really had such a um, an influence on so many people. And I'm going to give you a quick story. Um, I'm I don't think I've told you this before. In my neighborhood, growing up, there was um, a family that had just moved down from New Jersey to a house right around the corner. 
Um, the daughter was my age, Laura. They, they were the Wright family, W-R-I-G-H-T. Laura was my age, and by the way, a phenomenal athlete. Um, she was the she was the second best basketball player in the neighborhood <laughs> next <laughs> next to me. It's probably true. And um, her older brother Andy was two years older. Um, was not the athlete that his sister was, but was a massive sports fan. So in the neighborhood, we hit it off from the moment that he moved down because he was a huge Mets fan in particular, um, but also a Jets fan and was just a big sports fan, and he recognized what a big sports fan I was. But it must have been a year or two after they had moved uh, down. He and I, in, in the summers... You know, back when there weren't video games, you know, and you didn't have a phone and you were told by your parents, you know, it's it's eight, nine o'clock in the morning. Hey, go play basketball or baseball. Be home <laughs> by dinner. Andy and I would basically play an entire World Series wiffle ball one on one the Mets against the Oakland A's because I became after the Senators left which I you know vaguely remember I became an Oakland A's fan we didn't have a team I I didn't want to root for the Orioles I remember that even as a young kid I want our own team and the A's had won you know three straight World Series and the A's were my my team and Vita Blue was my favorite player in baseball you know Tommy, I collected baseball cards. I was a huge baseball fan as a kid. Plus, I played baseball. You know, I played Little League. I played through um, freshman uh, 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 baseball in high school through ninth grade. Um, It was not my best sport by a mile. I got to the point where, to be honest with you, I didn't love it much. I was fine in the field. Once the guy started throwing curveballs, that was it. Um, I was done. But the the A's of of the mid seventies, you know, mid uh, mid seventies were my favorite teams. And so Andy and I on a side yard in the neighborhood that set up perfectly for three bases, or, or for for marks that would indicate, you know, single, double, triple home run, you know, out. Um, we would, you know, uh, one guy would pitch, one guy would hit, but we would go through the entire batting order. And I'm telling you right now, I can still remember some of the names of the Met teams because, first of all, the pitchers, I remember Seaver and Kuzman in particular because the, right. you know, those were who – Seaver was his guy too, but I remember Jerry Kuzman. And then I remembered names like Ed Cranepole and Dave yeah. Kingman and um, uh, who was the uh, shortstop that was really feisty, uh, Bud Harrelson. Bud Harrelson. Yeah. Kingman Joe, came along much later. Kingman came along later during the oh, he, Well, I remember Kingman being part of it, so maybe maybe we yeah. played that game for several years and he came along. I remember Joe Torrey's name as a part he of that team. He was the manager. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, he, he was a player. He played, for, he played for them at the end of his career, and then he managed them. Okay. Yeah, well, when for them. when we were playing the the, um, the the seven game World Series, and we would play a best of seven, nine innings. So each of these games, by the way, is lasting every bit of an hour plus. You know. Um, I remember Joe Torre being a part of it. And for me, I mean, I can still remember those days. I mean, I remember Burt Campanaris and, of course, Reggie and Joe Rudy and um, um, uh, Dick Green, the, the second baseman. The pitch-
pitchers I definitely remember. Vita Blue was my game one starter. Catfish Hunter, Ken Holtzman. You know, uh, you had Raleigh coming out of the out of the bullpen, and he and I would sit there, and he was such a diehard Mets fan, and we would play best of seven. And I swear to God, Tommy, and I don't know if it was just because we both wanted it. Every single series we played went to a seventh and deciding game. <laughs> somehow some way and you know you'd pitch and you could get strikeouts but based on where the ball was hit it would be something it would be a ground out it would be a pop out it would be a single double triple or home run and um I just remember those met teams from Andy Wright who lived right around the corner Laura was in my class right through high school she was a terrific athlete but she got to the point where she you know, being an athlete during that day and age wasn't girly enough. And I always told right. her, like, even, um, you know, probably the last time I saw her was probably 15 years ago. I'm like, you would have been all county in every single team sport <laughs> if you had played sports. Um, but anyway. Uh, and, and the 69 Mets, I mean, which I, I still think it's the all-time underdog to uh, championship. Uh, in terms of accomplishment. By the way, a year uh, after the Jets won it in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, well, the, yes, well, actually the same year. Uh, right, well, actually. it was the 69 Super Bowl, yeah. Right. Right, yeah. yes. Right. Uh, and, and the Knicks wound up winning the championship. In, God, what you know, a year in New York. Team. I know, it really was. But, uh, I mean, this is the year that, I mean, how, of all years for the Mets to win, they win in the year that we walk on the moon. That was appropriate. <laughs> that that man walked on the moon and the Mets won a World Series because both seemed like long shots at one point. I, and uh, you know it's uh, you know it doesn't hold uh, the Mets. They don't really mean anything to me anymore. Like I, I've I've told you everybody, I'm not really a fan. Uh, I root for me, whatever works for me. Yeah, but Seaver, Seaver touches still touches that fan inside of me deeply. And his departure is felt. Do you know, um, I'm just reading um, from his Wikipedia page. Did you know that um, he trademarked Tom Terrific? And Tom Brady attempted in 29 to trademark Tom Terrific, but the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office... Actually, I'm sorry. His nickname was Tom Terrific. Brady tried to trademark Tom Terrific, but the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office said... It was too close, and it would falsely suggest a connection with Tom Seaver, and denied him the trademark of Tom Terrific. Good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good. Uh, Bra- you know, Brady wins the, enough. The day that Seaver won his 300th game, he was 40 years old. Wow. He threw a 145 pitch complete game win. Wow. When he was 40 years old in '69, when he went 25 and seven. And won the Cy Young, one of three Cy Youngs he won. On August fifth, he was fifteen and seven. He went ten and zero in his last eleven starts and pitched nine innings in each of his last eight starts. Wow. No home runs. He was a handsome dude too. That's for sure. I mean, he was he was marketed in a big way for that era, wasn't he, Tommy? Yeah. Oh yeah, he was a- absolutely, and that. Look, for even even without if you weren't a Seaver fan, that pitching style, that 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 drive where he would like his he would push so hard with his legs that his his knee would appear to touch the ground, you know? 
I mean, that so many kids grew up trying to pitch that way. I mean, it was such a distinctive style of pitching. Like, it was a maximum effort way of pitching. Yeah. When Tom Seaver threw, there was nothing effortless about it. It was like he, it was like, it was like a fighter when he threw the ball. Uh, and he lasted a long time, 311 wins. Um, you know, COVID-19 was a part of his, the cause of yeah. death. Um, he also yeah. had uh, Lyme disease. He also had dementia, apparently. But I don't know if dementia would have been an underlying um, disease uh, that that COVID-19 would have affected. But certainly Lyme disease would be because that that impairs the immune system um, to a certain degree over time. But anyway, um, that's sad. Um, but I, I, I knew I knew you would... Um, and you would miss him. You know what? The other thing, quickly, I just I, I just saw he was on the '86 Mets on the '86 uh, Red no, Sox. '86 Red Sox, but yeah. couldn't pitch in the World Series because he he came he came to the Red Sox before, uh, or, or they kept him off the the roster, or he came to the team before they could put him on the postseason roster. Can you imagine if he had pitched against the Mets in the World Series? Oh, I'm so glad he did. I'm so <laughs> glad he did. That would have been too painful. Yeah, too too painful. Who would be your guy? Who would be your receiver? So, like, there's there there's several. I don't think I have one. Like, asking me that question, here's immediately who comes to mind. First of all, George Gervin, when I was a young, even though he did not play for any of my teams, was my favorite player in sports for a long period of time. I loved the Iceman, had the poster. I just loved it. And when I got a chance to meet him a few years ago, Cooley and I were doing this thing out at Jack Nicholas's golf course uh, out in uh, in Virginia, and Gervin was there to be a part of of a big um, charitable event. And Nicholas sat down with us, and then and then the Iceman walks in. And we ended up having, I mean, I, I, Cooley was like, man, you're really into him. And I'm like, you have no idea because I was ripping through all of these games he played. Like even when they moved to the Western conference and they were playing the Lakers, I was always rooting for him to get to a championship series, which he never did. I loved him. I loved John McEnroe. Um, I was a big John McEnroe fan. He's one of my favorite athletes of all time. Like I would, when, when McEnroe was in his heyday in majors, I would sit there even if the match took three and a half hours, four hours, and I would watch all of it. Um, obviously, here I was a big Sonny fan growing up. My my, but I but I you know I was really there at the end of Sonny's career. But my father was a huge Sonny fan. I was clearly a big Rigo fan. Um, you know during those years. But as a kid, you know, as a young kid, I mean. It probably would have been Sonny more than anybody else. I was I loved Larry Brown. Um, I had a Larry Brown jersey. Also had a Chris Hamburger jersey. Um, you know, before they really made jerseys, but it would come in a box. You know, with like a yeah. plastic helmet and some shoulder pads. You know, and some pants. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that was it. Oh, uh, Elvin Hayes was a big t- favorite of mine. I mean, I loved the Big E. And John Lucas, who played for Maryland, was certainly, as a kid, I would be shooting left-handed shots to try to emulate Lucas when he played for Maryland. Th- those those are some okay, of the guys. Okay, you're but all, not, but you're not like you. But place. not like you. Yeah, I didn't have one guy. I bet you do. Okay, let me ask you this question. I don't... Not, not people you've met in the business. But uh, 
who would make it? Who? Would, what? What would be an emotional trigger for you of a sports figure of your youth uh, if they passed away? That's what we're talking about here. What would touch you? What? What, what stranger I, you've I, never met? Yeah, would touch a you stranger that I've never met. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I met Seaver, but even if I never met Seaver, it wouldn't have made any difference. I mean, I obviously would be, I, I, Tommy, I'm telling you, it's not, it's not one guy. Like obviously uh, the, the Iceman and McEnroe, you know, as far as coaches, you know how much I loved lefty. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, I, I hope lefty lives another 20 years, but more likely than not, he won't. And that'll be a very sad day. Um, I, okay. I, there's not. There really isn't. Like I'm just trying to think of. Obviously, the fact that it doesn't come immediately to mind tells you I don't have just a guy. But there were several guys that I really, really loved, and you know would would be. I mean, I shot the I shot the Elvin Hayes turnaround fadeaway bank shot, <clears throat> you know, and I would try to do Gervin's finger roll or Lucas's left-handed set shot. You know, I'm just thinking about when I was a kid, and, and basketball is what I played more than anything, but football's probably what I watched more than anything. Um, you know, I didn't have a baseball team, so there's no baseball hero for me. You know, Frank Howard, you know, I b- barely remember Frank Howard. Um, now, yeah. it took me, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a thin line between Seaver and Willis Reed. I was going to yeah, but uh, I know yeah. that Seaver was always your guy, even though you love Willis yeah. Reed. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not much of a distance between Seaver and Willis Reed. And then Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. I love both of them. And then you get to name it. But, uh, but again, Willis Reed, I mean, I've, I've been so lucky in my life. I got to I spend an afternoon with Willis Reed up in New Jersey interviewing him in his hotel room for a sport magazine story I did. You know, uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I, I met Joe Frazier. I spent a lot of time with Ollie. The only one of my icons of that five. I loved Ollie. I never got to meet with Namath. Yeah. I, I, and, and Which drove me nuts because Dusty Baker was friends with Namath. Namath would come to national spring training, but when I wasn't there. <laughs> I mean, it used to drive me nuts because I knew if, if Namath was there, if I said to Dusty, Dusty, this guy meant so much to me when I was a kid. I could have met him. So I never did meet Neiman. You know, the other thing about me too, Tommy, is I'm just sitting here thinking about it a little bit because my favorite teams were everything to me. You know, Maryland basketball, the Redskins, the Bullets. I loved Maryland football too, but really like in order, the Skins, Maryland basketball, the Bullets – you know, and then, you know, probably Maryland football, those teams meant everything to me. So the players that were on those teams were so important to me. But I think probably I was more about my team winning all the time than just completely sort of attaching myself to one player that I really revered. I I do, as a young kid, I really remember Larry Brown being very important to me. 
and having that 43 jersey and being in the backyard with kids in the neighborhood and, and by the way, hosing off the yard to turn the field into a mud field and – and, 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 you know, getting the 43 jersey muddy because Larry Brown was, you know, he was their best player during those first teams that were really good under George Allen. I do remember really loving Larry Brown, and I loved Sonny, oh, too. He was, an, he was an NFL MVP. Right. I loved Larry Sonny, Brown too, was. but I'm convinced I love Sonny more because my father and my uncle loved Sonny. But Billy Kilmer was the starting quarterback of the first teams I can really remember. Sonny played a lot and started right. a lot of games, but Billy, you know, Sonny kept getting hurt in in you know the preseason one year, and then against the Giants at Yankee Stadium uh, in '72. And Kilmer was was George Allen's guy more than Sonny was. Um, you know what's interesting? I've been going through uh, old transcribed interviews I have from various sports figures, and actually I'm transcribing them into my computer now, just so, so I have them updated here. Right. And I've got like a lengthy interview with Johnny Unitas, where at the end of the interview, he drops this nugget that George Allen, after Sonny tore his Achilles, George Allen called Unitas and said he was going to try to trade for him. <laughs> wow. That that was yeah. that was September of 1972, you know yeah. that that was not not 72 71 excuse me, right? I mean, United was on the, on his way out in Baltimore, you know. At that point, uh, they wound up trading him to San Diego, uh, and he had a miserable ending to his career. But he almost wound up replacing Sonny as a Redskin. That would have been that wild been, because that would have been wild. Yeah, because he he traded for Billy Kilmer. And Kilmer, you know, started, and Kilmer was a winner. Kilmer was was Allen's kind of guy. You know, he didn't need to throw the ball thirty plus times. That was the that was a big number back then. You know, rarely did you see a lot of forty yard passes. Um, but the uh, but but Kilmer was really a guy that I mean, hell, they, 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 in seventy two, Jurgensen started a couple of games, um, but uh, but but got hurt. He, I'm, I'm looking at. Um, how many games he started in 72? 71 was five games, 72, seven games. I remember them beating um, the Cowboys at home in a huge game that Sonny started in during the regular season. Uh, but Billy started the significant majority of games during the George Allen era. Many more games than Sonny started. I mean, I can look up the numbers to, to get. To, oh, you're to right. Make sh- Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Billy became by the, you know, th- that was the Sonny Billy thing. The, 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 first real quarterback controversy in this town. And of course they were the best of friends, um, the, the, the two of them. And they, and they still are. Yeah. Now, um, so in 70, 70- you know, Billy, Billy is in the college football hall of fame as a halfback. Well, he was he was a running quarterback when he got to the Saints he, in the or the Forty Niners. Uh, he played he played at UCLA. Yeah. He was the uh, tailback in UCLA single wing formation. Right. Yeah. Um, and was highly touted uh, until he had a terrible car accident. 
Yeah. The, um, by the way, the the big injury to Sonny was the Achilles injury at Yankee Stadium in '72. That's what I was thinking about. '71, um, yeah. he got hurt too. But in '72 was the you know the famous picture of Sonny walking off the field at Yankee Stadium as Billy's walking on Sonny with a torn Achilles, and then Billy. Yeah. T- that was the week after Sonny started and beat the Cowboys. But you know they were going back and forth as starters. You know that year. Um, and Sonny had a big game the week before against the Cowboys, and it looked like that was going to be his team in 72. Then he tears the Achilles, and it's Kilmer's team the rest of the way. And they, you know, they end up in the Super Bowl. Um, and uh, I loved Billy, too. Like, to me, it was not a controversy. I loved both of them. But I, I do know it being very important to my father and uncle in particular. Sonny was their guy. <laughs> I mean, they... they... And there's, look, there's a lot of guys on that, on that team that lost the Super Bowl that think they would have won it if Sonny had been a quarterback. No doubt. You know, and, and there's a lot there's a lot of thinking like that from those guys. You know, those years that I was doing the pregame show, especially the years when Sonny was always a part of the pregame show and I would do that hit with Sonny, which was everybody's favorite segment of the pregame show, either that or 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 with Doc. Um, but I loved talking to Sonny during those um, pregame hits over the years and um he told me many times and probably told us in that lunch with a legend that the most important game and the game that he remembers so vividly was his Super Bowl game against the Dolphins, which came in the regular season in his final season in the NFL in 1974. And he led an 80-yard drive with under two minutes to go through a touchdown pass to Larry Smith uh, with under 10 seconds to go, and they beat the Dolphins 20-17. to 17. And Sonny had a big day, threw for over 300 yards in that game. And it was, you know, it was the same Dolphins. I mean, that was a Dolphins team that, uh, you know, was, was a two-time defending Super Bowl champion at that point, still with Greasy and Zonka and Kick, et cetera. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and Sonny treasured that game and that opportunity to get the Dolphins because he, uh, he obviously feels like had he started – in Super Bowl seven, they would have had a better chance. And, you know, when they got behind, I mean, Sonny would have given them a better chance to come back throwing the football. You know, that last year, I mean, Sonny started uh, four games. Uh, he appeared in 14. I think he led the national NFL in passing. Uh, I think he led in in passer rating. He was yes, passer rating. Yes, That's what I meant. yeah, because it, yeah, I mean it I wasn't. Think he in, led him in passer rating. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think it was either that or completion percentage. One one or the other. It was something because he didn't play enough. He was forty to, years old in that final year in nineteen seventy four, yeah. and you know his final game. They had a playoff game in the Coliseum against the Rams, um, and that would also be the the final playoff game. Uh, that's 94, not true. 94.5. His quarterback rating was, which was the highest of his. There it was okay. So that almost was almost the it was. highest of his career. Yeah, Sonny came in um, for Kilmer in that playoff game at the Coliseum, and you know Kilmer wasn't doing well. And, and back then, it was not unusual for Billy to start and Son- Sonny to come off the bench. I mean, Allen would go to him if they weren't generating enough offense. And Sonny came in, and Tommy, I just remember Isaiah Robertson. You know, a linebacker for uh, the Rams in a super, yeah, cl- him. super close game in the fourth quarter, and Sonny threw it right to him, and he, he returned it for a touchdown, and they lost nineteen to ten. Was the final score in the Coliseum, uh, and Sonny threw, I think, off the bench three or four interceptions in that game. 
off the bench. Now, you know, back then, if you ever look at box scores from way back then, there were so many more interceptions, so many more turnovers in general in in the NFL back then. Um, but that was Sonny's final game, and it was – I'm going to – I'm pulling it up right now as we speak because I want to make sure that the interception number that I gave you was correct. Um, Sonny, Sonny, Sonny. Pro football reference is the best. Uh, okay. Here it is. Um, December 22nd, 1974, Rams 19, Redskins 10 at the Coliseum. Sonny Jurgensen came off the bench, 6 of 12, 78 yards, three interceptions. It was probably in a half. He threw three interceptions. It's a lot of interceptions. And then he retired. He retired. It was, you know, that that's, that's George Allen coaching against the Rams in a playoff game. That was a big deal. You know, the the first time George Allen's uh, Washington team played the Rams was in his first year in Washington in 1971. It was also, Tommy, right the second year of Monday Night Football, and they scheduled Redskins at Rams for late in the season. It may have been the final Monday Night game of the year. Um, It was the next to last week of the year, and the Skins had to win to clinch a playoff berth. The Rams were still in playoff contention, and the Skins won that game at the Coliseum, and that was the return of George Allen with all of those players that were playing for the Rams the year before. Yeah, the Rams Skins. Yeah, and they went in there, and they won that game. Kilmer is the quarterback. They clinched their first playoff berth since the 1940s at that point. Um, and then uh, Allen had a couple of other games against the Rams during his uh, career in Washington, but the playoff game in 74 was a winnable game, and Son- but, but Sonny threw three picks in the second half off the bench, um, which was obviously a, a problem. Um, but uh, that was the last game of his career, last game of his career. I'm, I'm looking to see. Jack Hacksaw Reynolds had one of the interceptions. Isaiah Robertson had the one 59 yards. He returned it for a touchdown. And Bill Simpson, I don't know who that was, had the other one. Uh, Joe Theismann returned four punts in the game, Tommy, <laughs> in, that, in that playoff game. And the Rams were just a two-and-a-half-point favorite, as I give you more information from a 1974 playoff game. <laughs> um uh, you know, it's great pro football reference gives you the point spreads, gives you the weather of the game. It was 57 degrees in the Coliseum, relative humidity 69%. The wind's 10 miles per hour. The Vegas line, Rams minus two and a half. So, you know, the, the, the Allen teams were always a threat. They got to the Super Bowl. They never won another playoff game. They lost in 71 to the 49ers as a wild card team. They won they beat the Packers, Cowboys in the you know in 72 lost to the Dolphins and then they lost to the Vikings, Rams and Vikings in their last three playoff games under Allen. Allen's you know look, Allen's a Hall of Fame coach and he's for, forever going to be known as one of the great innovators of all time as a as a football coach. But George Allen did not have a good playoff record. He was Marty Schottenheimer in the playoffs. Yeah, you're right. Well, listen, how do you think he felt, you know, being walking around with with, with Bruce Allen as his kid? <laughs> you know? 
he that was probably a handicap for him. Do you know some He'd of probably the, think, oh my God, what a dummy I got for a kid. How can I concentrate on coaching this team? I had another kid that turned into a you know a, a major politician. Do you know that when um, that Bruce was a big part of that team when his father coached those games because Bruce was. If you look at some of those games, the NFL films shots, you see Bruce as a young you know as a young teenager running the sidelines you know all all over those nfl films things but i, I just pulled up george allen's he was probably he was probably spying for his father <laughs> george allen's regular season record tommy 116 47 and 5 he had a he had a a, a 70.5 percent a 0.705 wow. win percentage in the regular season that's, that's impressive the playoffs two and seven the two wins in Washington to get to the Super Bowl, two and seven. He was zero for two with the Rams, and he was two and five in Washington in playoff. I mean, it's games. really stunning that they they didn't go, they didn't win a championship with the Rams with 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 that defense the that they force. had. Yeah, right. And and they had Bernie Casey and Zach Snow as receivers and Roman Gabriel, Gabriel. as the quarterback, and they they got beat by the Packers in in the playoffs. George Allen, remember, came back to coaching in the USFL in the early 80s and coached Chicago um, and then Arizona. And he got to the playoffs in both of his years as a head coach with another really good win percentage in the regular season, but lost um, in the playoffs uh, both times. He did get, actually, he took Arizona to the championship game and they lost to the Philadelphia Stars in 84. Look, he was a winner, period. He was able to come in. He was a great defensive mind. He was a defensive, he was a football innovator. He was able to motivate like very few coaches could, certainly in short, you know, um, sprints in terms of years. But man, uh, you know, like Marty, maybe. A bit too conservative in the postseason. You got to take some chances. Gibbs knew that, Tommy. You know, one of yeah. the things I always loved about Gibbs is Gibbs would save his most aggressive coaching for the postseason. You would see more, you know, uh, trick plays in the postseason games than you ever would in the regular season. It's like he saved all that. You know, Daryl Green back on a punt return. A lateral across the field to Daryl Green on a punt return. A Riggins pass, halfback pass. A B. Mitch fake punt as the up man. Like, I'm just remembering a few of the plays. I can't even remember them all. But Gibbs became a much more aggressive-minded coach in the postseason than he was in the regular season. Allen kept his conservative, you know, um, philosophy. And like Marty, Marty was very conservative as a coach and ultimately played these close games that left too much, you know, margin for error, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, another complaint uh, that I heard from guys from that Super Bowl team was that George overcoached in preparation for that Super Bowl. He had them looking at, at high school films of Miami Dolphins players <laughs> leading up to the Super Bowl. That's, But that's him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I know you've told me that, and I think I've read stories about that 72, two-week lead-up to, to Super Bowl Seven. that the, the guys had had it with them. They were tight. They weren't allowed to do anything. They had very strict curfew. Yeah. Um, and... 
you know, and that's that's what he decided to do. And they, they came out. They did not play a good game. Um, still, though, had a chance after the and, Gary Uprimian fast play. Yes, they did. Meanwhile, Miami had a great defensive play uh, scheme, playing five defensive linemen right. uh, and basically stuffing Larry Brown in the running game. Uh, Manny Fernandez uh, had a tremendous game up front for, for the Dolphins, and Allen never had any other answer for that offensively. Well, the, the irony of that is Allen in a playoff game a few weeks earlier against the Packers at RFK Stadium and John Brockington, who was one of the NFL's leading rushers, put Manny Sistrunk as a fifth down lineman, you know, and they went with five defensive linemen and totally shut Brockington down. That was, that was Allen's innovation. You know, just a few weeks earlier in the playoffs, I'm not sure. I I'm, my memory is that it hadn't been done, but when you just brought that up, um, I thought of um, I thought of what Allen did in the playoff game a few few weeks earlier. Maybe maybe he wasn't the first to do it, but I remember that being a big part of the strategy in shutting down Brockington in that playoff game. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this is what we do sometimes. What? Let's turn the clock forward to 2020. <laughs> Why don't we do that? <laughs> okay. we, but, but before we do that, here's a word from one of our sponsors. So, Tommy, you know, we sort of saw this coming, what I'm going to say to you, and that is all of these sports being played at the same time and everything's sort of coming together. And I realized this morning when I got in very early and I started to write my updates for the morning that, God, there's a lot going on right now. So much going on. I stayed up and watched the NBA playoffs last night. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but I'll just tell you, I thought the games were poorly coached, especially that OKC-Houston ending. Um, OKC was completely lost with Chris Paul on that one possession. They were facing zone. They didn't even know it. Then they couldn't even get the ball inbounds at the very end. Billy Donovan's overrated as an X's and O's coach. Um, And James Harden offensively, sometimes in these big spots, looks as if he's, you know, like a deer caught in the headlights. Now, he had the biggest defensive play of the game, um, but uh, I was rooting for OKC last night. And then the the officiating in the uh, Miami-Milwaukee game was terrible. That's it for the NBA today. I won't bore you with, um, uh, or or some of you uh, care, but I care more than most of you. So we'll move on to, to other things. But there's so much going on. Baseball, NBA, NHL playoffs. Then you've got the NFL gearing up for a season. You've got all of these other stories going on. The Kirk Cousins comments. Tommy, the, the Kentucky Derby is this weekend. Are we going to completely overlook that? Yeah. I mean, all yeah. of this stuff is coming together at once. It's crazy. Um, but I think we need to start with the football team. Um, first of all, there, there are two non-football field-related topics to get to. One is that ESPN apparently is today and tonight running interviews with four women. The f- All four of them, by the way, uh, part of the last Washington Post story. Then you pulled up this... Um, sort of um, 
alteration, if you will, to the defamation lawsuit. We'll get to that. But the news yesterday that Dwayne Haskins is the starting quarterback and named starting quarterback, and Ron Rivera saying a lot of nice things about him, Um, Scott Turner saying a lot of nice things about Dwayne Haskins. They both essentially said, look, this guy, he, he proved every, he did everything we asked him to do. Um, we're very comfortable with this. He deserves the opportunity, uh, Rivera said. He's going to get my support. And he said, hopefully we can ride it as long as I wrote it with Cam Newton. Um, and he just said, you want to be able to have that guy and have that guy in place. Now, this is not a surprise to anybody, really. Um, and uh, and I, I don't have... I wouldn't have had a problem if he had held back on the news until the opener, and I don't really have a problem with him, you know, uh, going alive with the news now. I think it probably makes Dwayne feel better, although clearly he's been taking all the number one reps in practice anyway. My, My take is this, you know, I like Dwayne Haskins. I was more optimistic after last year than I ever was before he got here. I think he's going to be a good quarterback. Um, I would bet much more on him becoming a good quarterback than becoming a bad quarterback. Now, I don't think I would make a large wager on him becoming a great quarterback or an elite quarterback, but I see a guy, as I've said many times, that has all the physical tools, that competes like hell, that has a sense about him um, in terms of confidence on the field, is a much better playmaker, uh, much more mobile than than I ever thought he was, and I know, because I've heard this from people, that he's bright, and now we know, at least for now, that he's committed. What bothers me are the same things that probably bother some of you and Tommy. There's definitely, through his social media um, you know, uh, activity, there's definitely a guy there that, that is overly sensitive to criticism, um, a bit insecure, And that gnaws at me a little bit. But I would still, if you told me I had to bet now, is he going to be good or bad, I would say good. I wouldn't bet on elite, and I certainly wouldn't bet on very awful, like a total bust. I think Dwayne Haskins is going to be a good quarterback. I really do. And I'm excited to see him this year. What do you say? Well, my issues with Haskins have never been about his ability to play. Uh, I don't pretend to be able to to determine that he's going to be a good quarterback or not. He was a very good quarterback at Ohio State, obviously, throwing 50 touchdowns there. Uh, Physically, he's big. He's got a great arm, uh, can connect with receivers, has a special relationship with Terry McLaurin, obviously. Uh, My issues with Haskins were always the -the off-the-field red flag stuff that – that were, you know, partly, uh, you know, his fault, and partly in the organization he was he was drafted into. Uh, I had major, major qualms about his relationship with the owner, his friend Dan, moving forward. Um, I don't have those kind of qualms so much anymore for a couple of reasons. One, I think Ron Rivera might command enough respect. To halt that, okay. Whereas Jay Gruden commanded no, no respect, basically. You know, uh, I think Ron Rivera can can basically get a hold of that. Uh, plus, I think there's a chance he may be playing for a new owner at some point soon. So I don't I don't have the same concerns that he's going to 
you know, say, you know, be in a situation where, well, the owner's my friend, I can do what I want kind of thing. You know, I, he entered this franchise, you know, wanting to wear a number that no one else had worn since Joe Theismann wore it. Right. And it, it took off from there, the Haskins versus, you know, Haskins and Haskins marketing, all that stuff. All that pretty much has disappeared, you know. I mean, from what I've read and from what I know from a distance, he committed himself to working hard this offseason, uh, working with his receivers and getting himself in football shape and not marketing the business of Dwayne Haskins. You know, I mean, if you take care of the business on the football field, the marketing will take care of itself in, in terms of, of Dwayne Haskins. So I don't have the reservations right now that I had uh, last year when he was taking selfies with, with you know people in the crowd and stuff like that. I think he's matured. I think Ron Rivera has set a tone that won't allow you know certain kinds of behaviors uh, that might have been allowed in the past. So with that all said, there's no reason why he can't be everything that you think he can be as a quarterback. I see nothing that says to me that he can't be a good quarterback in the NFL, based on what I know. What is going on with you? Why? <laughs> what are you? What are you doing? You're, why? You're, because this is not how you really feel. Yes, no, it is. No, it, is. it, it isn't. Was never about. No, it was never <laughs> about his ability as a football player. It was always about. The I Snyder. understand that, but you kept. You've said over and over again that what makes you believe that Ron Rivera is going to stop Snyder from getting involved and ruining well, that Haskins? Was, that was that was before Snyder was was knocked down to two foot six. <laughs> well, I, okay. I'll tell you what, it's a feisty two foot six because he's yeah, he just filed that. another lawsuit. We'll get to that here shortly. But, so, no, the Snyder, the Snyder thing does not bother me at all because, and we don't want to get into that until we do, uh, I don't think the owner is going to be an issue for anybody pretty soon. Okay. Um, uh, look, so I mean, you, you, way, I mean you, spent, you, spent, you spent no less than 30 minutes after the Detroit game essentially saying this guy is a complete and utter child and you wouldn't, you know, you, you think that, that his future is, is very, very uh, sketchy. Because he was in an organization that, wouldn't, that, would, that would permit that childish behavior okay. to happen. All right. I don't see Ron Rivera running that same organization. Hmm. Did um did Julie offer you some sort of gig? <laughs> you know, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I could be I could be obnoxious like you and stick with my position. Uh, I mean, or, or else I could be open minded. Oh, now it's right. It's you who's open minded. Actually, it's more often the case that you dig your heels in, and no matter what information comes your way, you just you just complete. You'll bury yourself on that original position. But that's fine. You're disappointed when I don't do that, right? No, I'm fine. I'm just surprised. I'm just surprised that you're so optimistic now about Haskins. Look, and he showed, he did show enough last year to think that he can play in this league. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's he... the other stuff. It's, and, and here's the other thing that we don't know that I'm, I'm figuring went away with maturity, as, as, with the maturity that had come to him. 
the little Knicks that, that put him on the sideline last year. You know? Yeah. Look, there I, mean, are... I don't think you're going to see that anymore. You know, here's – so it's an odd year. You know, everything's crazy, and especially in sports. And so I don't know how any of this for football will manifest itself on the field. Um, the lack of a, of a true off season, the lack of crowds, you know, everything, you know, weeks in which, you know, t- certain teams have a half dozen players down because they tested positive. Who knows? Um, what I do know is that the support system environment for Haskins is a million times better than it was a year ago. There are people in positions of power in on the football side that want him to succeed. And so last year at this time you had a head coach who didn't want him. You had people, you know, in the in the scouting department that were, you know, were still rolling their eyes because the owner came in and made the selection after they had worked so hard on that draft board. You actually have and maybe still have to this day, you know, some fans who are like as long as Snyder made the pick, it's going to be a complete bust. This is bullshit. Um the environment's totally different this year. Not to mention the fact that um, he really, because Gruden was so anti-Haskins, he really didn't, and, and this is a sign of immaturity, I will concede this point, he didn't really have a sense that he was going to play anytime soon, and because of it, I think his commitment level wasn't very high early on, and he was criticized for that, and you know, he was criticized that you know uh, anonymously and publicly, um, in, including when Adrian Peterson went after him a little bit, but... Um, now he's got a support system in place where everybody seems to be on the same page. And, you know, the one thing I would say is somebody um, uh, tweeted me earlier and said, so um, you're really excited about Haskins and you're really excited about Rivera. Like, w- w- what gives you any reason for so much hope with either one of these two guys? And I, and I know the, the reaction, Tommy, was um, to me saying, you know, there's some sort of level of of validity or confirmation that Ron Rivera, you know, went through this and watched Haskins and, you know, maybe made Haskins earn it to a certain degree. And, and somebody said, well, that's Ron Rivera. What does he know? Well, he did coach Cam Newton in his first year. Um, but I, I, will, I will sort of um, – concede this one point when it comes to the discussion of Rivera. Like, I'm happy that Rivera has signed off on this. It would have been a terrible indictment on Haskins if he didn't win the starting job over Kyle Allen. A, a really bad indictment. Um, but what what I will concede to a certain level is that Ron Rivera doesn't have a choice. Like, there's it, he's really, really bullish, at least publicly now, on Haskins, and he seems to be genuinely excited about Haskins being uh, the starter. And there seems to have not even been a question for the last three weeks in his mind that Haskins is the starter. But really, what choice did he have? He A, a guy with drop foot? No. A guy that... You know, played for him last year, but really isn't that good. He's he's a backup, or the kid that's got tremendous upside. Like there, there really wasn't much of a choice but to to pick Haskins. Okay, I get that. Uh, I said all along, my position was if everything is a hundred percent equal, yeah. and Alex Smith is a hundred percent 
back to form, that it would be no contest that Alex Smith would, would, would be the starting quarterback. Yeah, and I disagreed with that. Well, I know that. Yeah. But I but never, we'll never thought know. that he would he I never thought that he would be back. Yeah, we'll, we agreed on this. Right. We we never thought that he would be back to hundred percent. That's right. I saw okay. I saw some people taking shots at you on Twitter saying, "Oh, Tommy's going to be upset at this. He thought Alex Smith was going to start." That's not what Tommy said, people. No. Tommy said he gave you a hypothetical, which, by the way, just was a true hypothetical uh, because it really the chances of it happening weren't very uh, high. And that was if Alex sure. Smith is one hundred percent healthy, he thought Alex Smith would win the job. I said if he's one hundred percent healthy, he wouldn't win the job. That Alex that uh, Dwayne would still be the best option there, but there was never a chance he was going to be. 100% healthy. No. No, and 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 that that's that's probably not going to happen. I always I always preface it with I still think that Dwayne will be the starting quarterback come opening day. Yes, you did. I did that I did that numerous times. I remember. Uh what what happens to Alex Smith now? Uh he starts the season on injured reserve. They have okay. two quarterbacks active. This is my guess. We're going to know Saturday afternoon. I mean, we're we're forty eight hours or you know fifty hours, fifty three hours or whatever away from from learning that. Um, that's by the way, if you guys didn't know this, that's cut down day this Saturday. I mean, it sort of sneaks up on you when there are no preseason games. Uh, but I think he ends up on injured reserve. I think they would love him in the building. I think Dwayne, you know, said it last year that Alex was. It's the same way Mahomes talked about Alex. He's a terrific you know, um, source of, of knowledge. He's a mentor and Alex Smith gets to stick around and he gets to go out and throw the football around and, and who knows, maybe in November, or December, you know, if the Al, if somebody gets hurt and somebody else gets hurt and I don't see that ever happening, I would, you know, I've already made wagers against him ever taking a meaningful, you know, NFL snap other than something ceremonial, um, I just don't see that, but you know, they, they, he's under, they have to pay him, you know, they have to pay him. He counts what he counts on the cap. It's a massive number, but they're well under the cap anyway. And I, I think they wouldn't mind him being around. I think it's a, it's part of the culture change, Tommy, Adrian Peterson, Thomas Davis, Ryan Kerrigan back on one year, Alex Smith in the building. I mean, Ron Rivera wants as many adults, um, in the locker room, um, because, we haven't even had coaches who are adults in recent years. Right. I think you're right. I, I think you're right on, on all counts. Uh, however, people need to realize that, and I don't care how friendly Alex Smith was with Dan Snyder last year, even if Dan Snyder is, is still a presence at, at some point. You know, people think, well, Alex Smith will stay and work for the Redskins organization. He spent how many years in Kansas City? If, if he was going to work for an organization, he spent the bulk of his success with Kansas City. Right. With Why An- wouldn't with Andy he go Reed. work with Andy Reid? Of course. Why would he stay and work here? You know, I and mean, he's not tied to this organization. No. Uh, it just seems that way because uh, his contract has had such an you know has been so impactful. But uh, I don't see him. Keep saying, being some kind of front office advisor, and he's got to. He he costs a lot of money to hire Alex Smith as an advisor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I I don't. I, I honestly, on that front, I don't have any idea. I don't know anything about what his future desires are. You know, I do know this, and I and I think I'm safe in saying that the majority of players 
on any professional team in Washington that come here, that aren't from here, but end up living here and playing here, they like it here. You know, this is a great area to live in. And if you've got young kids, it's a great area to raise a family in. And I'm sure Kansas City is a great area too, but I bet you it's not, you know, to a young couple with, you know, means um, what what D.C. is and what the D.C. metro is. So I, I don't know what's in his mind. I don't know what's important to them. And then I think there might be a little bit more God in Kansas City. <laughs> okay, that's probably true. Um, okay. Real quickly, because we, we, I want to get to a couple of more stories here. And um, uh, and I got to tell you real quickly about mybookie.ag. So football season starts this weekend. We are one week away from the NFL season. There are college games this weekend. Not a lot of them, but there's some. Uh, and they are accepting wagers on those college games. The NBA playoffs have been great. And I've actually, uh, I'm wagering again, Tommy. I've been back at it this week and not doing too well. Um, but... Uh, the NFL's a week away. Week one of the NFL comes up a week from this weekend, this Sunday. Um, and you need a place to wager. If you need a place to wager, or if you're looking for a second or a third place to wager, you can trust me that my bookie is a solid shop. Quality uh, point spreads, plenty of bets, any proposition bet, any futures bet, fair pricing, and you get paid, and it's very easy. If you go to mybookie.ag, use my promo code KevinDC, they'll double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play. They've got live betting, in-game betting to championship futures. You can bet on every single play if you want to at mybookie. It's simple. Make your pick. Win big, collect your cash. Use my promo code KevinDC, double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today only at my bookie. All right, um, there are three more stories I want to get to, um, and that is the two uh, Dan Snyder related stories. One is this, and I haven't seen anything yet. I don't know if ESPN's run any of these interviews yet, but Jeremy Schapp from Outside the Lines has apparently four different interviews with four of the women that were all quoted in the last Washington Post story. Um, they are Rachel Engelson, Megan Imbert, Alicia Klein, and then Tiffany Scorby. She was the cheerleader that was there on fight night that um, alleged that Snyder propositioned her for his friend Tony Roberts. Um, all four of them have been interviewed by Jeremy Schapp. Uh, ESPN is going to be running these interviews apparently during the day. Um, and according to the ESPN press release, they uh, describe a pervasive organizational culture of misogyny and sexual harassment, saying that owner Dan Snyder deserves much of the blame. Um, now, in seeing that it's these four women, I wonder if there's going to be anything new here. You know, well, this is I don't get I don't get what ESPN is doing here. I mean, why go over the same ground, the Washington Post? I mean, I thought that they would be introducing some new women to the conversation. That's right. So I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I'm kind of surprised for a number of reasons they're doing this. Uh, first of all, the full report, the culture, Washington football, will be on outside the lines on the Sports Center segment today at noon. So it must have it must be airing while we're recording. I don't, yeah, it, I don't it, see it, any news it, on it. It re-airs at 6 o'clock tonight on Sports Center on ESPN2. And then on Sunday, 
franchise in crisis, the Washington football team, is an hour long outside the lines at 5 p.m. on ESPN2. Right. Uh, so they're devoting an hour to that. But, you, I mean, I don't understand what, they're, what new they're bringing to the table. And, and if that's the case, what's bizarre about this is ESPN doesn't usually slap around NFL owners. They're partners with the NFL, and they're very careful about that. And what's the upside to rehashing old ground? <laughs> it's almost like the, the league. Maybe the league wants them to do it. Well, I mean, you know, maybe for maybe the word is out that it's okay to take a shot at this owner. Yeah, I mean, they've certainly taken shots at this owner before. I yeah, mean, but, but but I mean, they don't. The ESPN does not invest money in production into going after NFL owners. They don't. So, okay, th- that's interesting, but uh, my reaction to it was your reaction to it. Is, are they going to cover new ground here, or are we just going to get the, you know, some of the women that were quoted in the Post story, are we going to be able to put faces and voices to their quotes in the Post? Is that all this is going to be? There were some headlines that ba- that, that uh, read ESPN about to run interviews with four women who say they were harassed by Dan Snyder. Well, you know, we only know of one woman that has a specific, you know, face-to-face encounter where she claims Dan Snyder did something inappropriate, which is uh, proposition her to go up to his hotel room to to show his good friend a good time. That's it. You know, if maybe there is more here, but my sense of it is is we're going to get the post story with audio and video. Um, but maybe not. We'll see. The second story you sent me, I didn't see this, and this came out yesterday, and this is very interesting. Once again, like we're going to need a flow chart to keep track yeah. of everything that's going on non-football related. I'm going to read this, this story. This one is particularly complicated. I'm going to read this story real quickly. Um, it's, a, it's a couple of paragraphs, but I, I think almost all of it is, um, is important. Washington owner Daniel Snyder continues to pursue evidence in connection with his pending defamation claim in India. Although his latest effort seeks information regarding someone other than former Washington employee Mary Ellen Blair, the latest effort potentially adds more breadcrumbs to a trail that possibly leads back to Washington minority owner Dwight Schar. So let me sum up this opening paragraph. Mary Ellen Blair was the former executive assistant to Snyder, who worked there from 2013 to 2017. Snyder filed for a discovery motion in a Virginia Virginia court because he believes Mary Ellen Blair knows where all of the information prior to the first post story in July stems from, and perhaps she's a part of it, and maybe it leads back to Shar, who funded it. The India company was the clearinghouse, I guess, for all of these stories, and that's the company, um, M-E-A-W-W, that is being sued for defamation. Let me continue with this story because this is where it gets interesting. On Wednesday, meaning yesterday, Snyder filed in a California federal court a document aimed at at obtaining information that potentially would link the defamatory articles and the broader alleged effort to smear Snyder back to Shar in a way that is separate and apart 
from the ongoing efforts in Virginia federal court to obtain information ultimately linking Shar through that Comstock real estate company that Shar's son-in-law runs who's, and, and his daughter's on the board um, that would link that Comstock th- thing to Mary Ellen Blair. In the California action, Snyder seeks from new content media. Now, this is a new name. We haven't heard this name. Snyder seeks from New Content Media Inc. information regarding its relationship with a company known as Honey House, which allegedly has a link to MEAWW.com. That's the India company, the website that published multiple false articles trying tying Snyder to Jeffrey Epstein. Snyder's lawyers explain in the filing that Honey House and MEAWW.com are active in the online pornography world and that Honey House publicly touts its business affiliation with MEAWW.com, specifically its ability to have its clients get their names and services promoted on MEAWW for pay. Snyder's lawyers also explain in the filing that Honey House solicits clients on social media by promoting, among others, the services that they have with MEAWW, which is a clear indication that Honey House touts its ability to have MEAWW place stories on behalf of its clients for pay. Ari Bass, according to the filing, runs Honey House. A lawyer named Mark Randazza, according to the filing, has a well-documented history and extensive ties with Bass. The filing lists several connections between the two men that resulted in litigation and allegations of stalking, intimidation, and harassment. Now, stay tuned here. Stick with me. That's where the document ends as it relates to the potential breadcrumbs leading back to Shar. However, a source with knowledge of the situation tells Pro Football Talk that Randazza has represented Shar in court. Pro Football Talk has obtained a document filed earlier this year in Florida by Randazza, Randazza, Randazza on behalf of Shar, coincidentally in an action aimed at securing discovery in a defamation case. So the information obtained in this California action may show a connection. Well, it does show a connection between new content media to Honey House to this to to this guy, Randazza. The next step could be to explore a connection between Randazza and Dwight Shar with the goal goal ultimately being able to prove that Shar initiated the process that resulted in the defamation um, uh, that was published on that MEAWW.com. They are, look, here's the bottom line. Snyder and his attorneys are convinced that Dwight Shar funded this and initiated this. And if they prove this, Tommy, Shar is going to pay big time. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. As much as, you know, people want Snyder to lose his team over this, the, 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 the gentleman with the most risk, that based on all that's going on, maybe Dwight Shar, because Snyder may lose his team, could lose his team. I don't think the two post stories are enough for him to lose his team. Um, Dwight Shar could lose in court, lose his uh, minority stake in the team, and be sued for millions and millions of dollars. Or else, this could be somehow go away 
when this is all tied up in some nice, tidy package, uh, and everyone settles and goes home, and Snyder takes his money uh, and slinks off into the sunset. Well, at this point, if Shar was behind the this smear campaign, Snyder wants to bury him, get rid of him and the other two guys as well, and keep the team. I get that. That might be what he wants to do. But in the end, he's got he's struggling a lot of but remember there's an arbitration hearing within the NFL between Snyder and the three minority owners. There's some there's some kind of dispute according to the New York Times that's unresolved. We don't know how big or what that is and if that would impact Snyder. And if it's a situation where if Snyder gets in trouble, part of any kind of agreement could be, well, you need to drop these lawsuits. It wouldn't be good for the NFL to have a minority owner, uh, you know, basically in this situation. And then you've got the whole Joe Gibbs thing. I mean, Gibbs and Dwight Shaw are, are, are close friends. Dwight, as much as Danny may have helped Gibbs with his Youth for Tomorrow thing, that's only because Dwight Shar is the one that connected him and Gibbs, and Dwight Shar is a big supporter of Gibbs' use for DeMar. Uh, how does this impact the whole Joe Gibbs relationship, I wonder? Look, I think this ESPN broadcast is a big red flag signal for Dan Snyder. It doesn't really matter what the content is. I think the fact that ESPN is doing it tells you that Dan Snyder is in trouble in the NFL. Well, I mean, think about Roger Goodell and the other owners when they're discussing the situation in Washington. So um, the Post has another story out about sexual harassment and verbal abuse charges. By the way, did you see the part about the paper clips? Oh, the, the investigation, Beth Wilkinson's, uh, we got to take that back from him. Um, there's an arbitration going on with the three minority owners over why they were dismissed from the board. Oh, don't forget, we got a defamation lawsuit. We've got discovery cases in Virginia and California, and old Ron's got cancer. <laughs> I mean, but other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? I mean, seriously. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, 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 it's like it's like a, it's like a railroad roundhouse <laughs> where you've got trains going in and out of different tracks and a new train coming out of the roundhouse. I mean, seriously, though, Tommy. I mean, they just have to be like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, can you? the easiest thing for the league would be for him to say, you know what, I'm not going to put you guys through this anymore. I'm going to sell the team. I'm putting the team up for sale. Um, let's let's do it. Um, I'll get out of your hair. And all of the, the, the smear campaign stuff will be between me and Dwight when we're, when we're not attached to the NFL anymore. Now, he's, he's not going to do it that way. <laughs> no, he's not. But he may do a variation of it. Yeah. He may be forced <laughs> to do a variation of it. In other words, I wouldn't be surprised if they if they suggest to Dan, with all this going on right now, you might want to take a leave of absence, step away from the team. Yeah, that's great. But what does that what does that really mean? I mean, I mean, I don't know. Well, I don't, I don't know. know. We, I'll never, tell you what, Tommy. Let, let me throw this one at you. Not that anybody here in this city would feel any empathy for him, 
But if he's able to prove that one of his minority owners initiated and funded a smear campaign with, by the way, some really ugly shit tied to Jeffrey Epstein, tied to sex trafficking, tied to drug trafficking, tied to bribing NFL referees, some people in that league may be like, go get him, Dan. What an asshole this guy Shar is. He yeah, ch- I don't see that happening. I mean, it's it's, it's a measurement of assholes. You know what Shar's defense <laughs> could be? That this guy's such a piece of garbage and so hated with such a terrible reputation. How could we possibly damage it? The the funny thing again, I'm I'm being very repetitive here. Those stories that came out that week leading up to the post story really helped him and the team. <laughs> When that post story came out, it was like, oh, so he's not tied to Epstein. Oh, so he's not a sex trafficker. And, of course, the team certainly felt that way. I mean, they put it out in their sales and marketing letter to clients. Here's the real truth, the post story. If you're a lawyer, represent, if it gets to this, you're up in HR, you say, look, the reason Snyder was upset about these is because people were willing to believe it of him because his reputation is so low. He is such a, it's a good way, it, it's public a, person. You know what? That's a really good point. You know, seriously, sometimes you really make a good point. Like, but you know, I don't even think anybody would think about it that way. But um, if you're sitting in the in that in that office and they're like, "Look, these two post stories, they're not enough." Um, he's not a sexual harassment guy. He's a, he's a bad owner. He's a bad manager. He treats his employees poorly, but we've had owners that have done a lot worse, including the guy in new England. Um, uh, and he, he's not, he doesn't know Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, his own minority owner is trying to sink him, but the way to look at it is what you just described, which is, yeah, but look, the fact that people were gobbling that up and they were willing to believe it, not only believe it, they, they were expecting that to be in the post story. It totally yeah. was plausible to everybody, the fan base, other owners, you know, uh, NFL fans. That's our problem. We can't shake him from p- the way people think about him. And by the way, he sucks at being an owner. You see, that's the other part. In, in this, let's, let's take like, the NFL viewpoint of, you know, taking all the negatives away. Like, let's say Roger Goodell was making a chart, the pros and cons of Dan Snyder as an owner. And now he's got to get to the pro part. And, they, and he looks at the other owners and they say, why, why should we keep this guy around? What does he do for us? What's the benefit for the NFL for having Dan Snyder as an owner? Does it help us on Capitol Hill? Does it help us with influence and lobbying and, and, and uh, influence and presence on Capitol Hill? He's an embarrassment to us there. They think he's a joke. Is he going to get a stadium built? No. You know, he's not going to get us a, stadium, a new stadium in, 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 in Washington. Why do we keep this guy around? He's, he's done nothing but take a franchise that we used to be proud of and made it one of the worst in the league. <laughs> Why keep him? Um, it's the opposite of Andy Bernard's pros cons list on on uh, premarital sex. <laughs> if you remember that episode, because everybody had all the pros, it feels great, and very few, except I think finally, um, maybe Aaron came up with unplanned pregnancy um, as a con <laughs> um, or STDs or something like that. But 
No, you're right. There, if you're if you're doing a pros cons list on Dan Snyder, I don't know if there's a pro, not one. Yes, not, not one, not a one. And and when you're looking, you're saying to if you're the NFL and you're thinking ahead, you're thinking, you know, what if we can figure out a way to put together a group to make the team in the nation's capital, Washington D.C., the first minority-owned NFL team. Who's going to be the minority owner? Well, you see, I don't know who that is. Rich African-American people. (laughs) Is is Bezos a minority? No, 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 he's not. Uh, He's a minority in that he's probably the richest man walking the planet. Yeah, he's worth over $200 billion. But, I mean, there's a... He's He's not going to be super popular. should Should be the city on the hill for them. For the NFL, I, I, I know this, that this should be oh. this should be a franchise that should be that should be one of their one of their glowing uh, success stories. Look, th- this is not disputed, people. Um, if, for the one or two of you listening that actually think we're being too harsh on Dan Snyder, and there's always one or two out of a hundred, maybe one or two, um, he is not respected. He is not well liked. He has very little support among the other owners and the commissioner. They would much prefer Dan Snyder to be gone and a new owner to be in. There, we've gone through all of the reasons ad nauseum, you know, over the last you know couple of months. But we've been going through these reasons for several years now. He's a bad owner. He's one of the worst owners in sports. His fan base despises him, and he can't. Get, and he's in a city that is very important to the league, as Tommy mentioned. And oh, by the way, that stadium a piece of shit and we need a new stadium in Washington so that we can generate a lot more revenue and he can't get it built as long as he owns a team I don't know maybe Jason Wright can get it built um, but uh, yeah I, it, it, it's what they prefer but the bottom line Tommy and there's they're going to need some smoking gun here I think they're going to need it. Now, I think eventually he's going to want to sell this team if it continues to be this way. I don't know how one human being, you know, it, uh, how you can be that much of a glutton for punishment. I mean, it cannot be comfortable for his family at all, um, him being yeah. the owner and being so despised. Um, and at some point, maybe he'll give in on that on that end. But um, Unless he just keeps his family on his boat and sails the world for the rest of his life. Yeah. Anyway, uh, last thing, uh, we'll get to this Kirk Cousins stuff and just give some quick thoughts on it. Um, But before we do, manscaped.com, guys, all right? The premium lawnmower 3.0 is waterproof. It includes an LED light. It's made with advanced skin-safe technology. It reduces nicks and cuts on your delicates. Manscaped has you covered to keep the hair looking nice and trimmed and feeling supported, and Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Plus, for a limited time, when you order the perfect package kit, you get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag and the Manscaped Anti-Chafing Boxer Briefs. That's Anti-Chafing Boxer Briefs. And that Anti-Chafing Cooler Boxing Brief product It may be one of the best parts of the collection. They've got optimal temperature control with their crop cooling technology. It keeps your pride and joy supported and feeling great. 
Pair these boxer briefs with their pH balancing liquid products like the Crop Preserver, and you're ready for anything. You need to try this out for yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping if you use the code, it's different than some of the other codes, the Athletic 20 the athletic 20 at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off with free shipping at manscaped.com use the code the athletic 20 from the moose to the caboose always use the right tools for the job so kirk cousins made headlines yesterday i always find it interesting about him i don't know why he is such a lightning rod tommy I, I, it's really forget about yesterday. I know it's the, the contract. I know the the debate as to whether or not you know he's a good quarterback or not a good quarterback. Whether you can win with him or you can't with win with him, and and certainly that controversy started here as as he went down the path of start uh, of signing you know massive franchise tags. I guess it's all about the money, right? You get that kind of attention when you end up basically. Um, you know, uh, playing for two massive franchise tags here and then signing the first all-guaranteed deal in NFL history. And then, by the way, this offseason, signing a massive extension. You know, there's a lot of expectation with all the money. And, you know, in terms of winning, he hasn't lived up to it. They had a huge playoff win last year in New Orleans when he played very well, um, especially on that final drive in in, uh, in overtime. So yesterday he's on uh, this podcast. It, it was um, the, the name of the podcast. I have it here. Do you have it here? Uh, Kyle Brant's 10 Questions. Kyle Brant's an NFL network guy. Um, you, you, you li- did you listen to it or did you just read the quotes? I read a transcript which included more than just the quotes. That's right. So anyway, he was on this podcast yesterday with Kyle Brandt. Um, Kyle Brandt has a podcast on The Ringer, I guess. Ten questions with Kyle Brandt. Kyle Brandt, I think, uh, works occasionally for the NFL Network. And it made sports headlines, news headlines, headlines everywhere. Um, Brandt asked him, among, among other things, um, to rate his concern about COVID-19 on a scale of 1 to 10, saying if one is the person who says masks are stupid, you're all a bunch of lemmings, and 10 is I'm not leaving my master bathroom for the next 10 years, where do you land? And Kirk said, quote, I'm not going to call anybody stupid for the trouble it could get me in, but I'm, a, I'm about at a point zero 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 one. Cousins replied. He said, I want to respect what other people's concerns are. For me personally, if you're just talking, no one else can get the virus. What is your concern if you get it? I would say I'm going to go about my daily life. If I get it, I'm going to ride it out. I'm going to let nature do its course, survival of the fittest kind of approach, and just say if it knocks me out, it knocks me out. I'm going to be okay. You know, even if I die, if I die, I die. I kind of have have peace about that. I have peace about that. That's really where I fall on it. So my opinion of wearing a mask is really being respectful to other people. It really has nothing to do with my own personal 
uh, thoughts. He then, um, after this blew up into headlines, it says, you know, Kirk Cousins disrespectful, doesn't believe in science, doesn't wear a mask, putting people at risk, etc. Um, he came out and had a bit of a mea culpa last night clarifying his comments. But I'm glad you you read th- through the transcript. I listened to the whole three minutes of that um, on that podcast, and I thought it was much different than the headlines. I'll let you go first on your thoughts on this. No, it was still a stupid thing to say. I mean, he wasn't necessarily saying what the headline made it out to say, but it was just still it was still a dumb, ill-advised thing to say. Uh, that's all I've got to say about it. Okay. Um, uh, unless, unless I want to add one other thing that just came out. Yeah. If he doesn't think this could affect him. Uh, Wayne Sebastianelli, Penn State's director of athletic medicine, made some alarming comments at a meeting yesterday at State College Area School Board of Directors saying that the connection between COVID-19 and myocarditis in Big Ten athletes revealed that approximately one-third of the Big Ten athletes who tested positive for COVID virus appear to have myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart muscle that can be fatal if left unchecked. Um, That's a bit disturbing. Yeah, of course, you know, with big football players in particular, um, you know, an enlarged heart and an enlarged heart muscle, myocarditis, um, is, you know, in some cases they're probably detecting this because of COVID-19. But whatever, I don't want to get into that because obviously I don't know and I still have this sense that not anybody has a firm grip of this, but I totally recognize the possibility of, you know, long life impact if you test positive, even if you're asymptomatic. Here are my thoughts on, on Kirk Cousins, and I'll make them brief. I don't think he should have said it either. I don't think he was very bright to say it, but I think he has the right to say it. Um, What he said wasn't that insensitive or an indication, as many were saying yesterday, of his political beliefs, even though, by the way, I would guess that he is a Republican. Um, I know he's very religious. His father was a preacher. Um, But uh, the the other thing, too, real quickly before I get to um, sort of a second part of this is that I think the one thing that he completely whiffed on with respect to this or the follow-up to it is the reason he should care a lot more is because a positive test means that he's not going to play in at least one game, if not two. So he he should be very sensitive to... Uh, COVID-19 and doing everything he can in his power to keep himself and his teammates from getting it because a positive test, even though he doesn't fear it and doesn't feel, feel like he'll die from it, it would keep him from playing in a game. So somebody should, should point. so somebody should uh, make that point to him. But here is the, the thing that I think is a bigger topic that comes up, I think, with a lot of the people that I've been interacting with. And I bet your experience won't necessarily be identical. But there are so many people, Tommy, that are living their life in fear. And there are so many people during these last six months that are living their life not in fear. 
I know so many of those people. I actually know several of the former as well. My mother and and her husband love them dearly. They have underlying conditions. They basically haven't left their home for the most part in six months. But, you know, and, and by the way, that's probably the smart thing for them. But people even without underlying conditions, there are some people who are living their life in fear. And then there are people that I know that just really aren't living their life with much fear. It doesn't mean that they're being disrespectful and avoiding social distancing or avoiding wearing a mask, um, but they're not slowing down their life. Okay, you know, I think I mentioned this about my father-in-law. He's got many underlying conditions. And he basically, his attitude is, I'm living my life. If this is a population thinning event, it is. And it's coming for me, which is one of the first things you said. But he's he doesn't want to be housebound for months after months. He thinks that will do more damage to him physically and, and to his psyche. Um, and... So I know a lot of these people. Look, the other night I played golf on Tuesday night. There's this Tuesday night group of guys that I play with. We have a lot of fun. There's, it's 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 like you know anywhere from eight to twelve guys, and it's a competition, three different tee times. And when we're done, everybody sits around drinking beers for for a few hours. I'm not going to sit there and tell you that everybody's wearing a mask as you're playing golf or wearing a mask when you're well, sitting Kevin, around. Kevin, what we've we've learned much more about the impact of ventilation. Yes, I know. And I, I understand outside. that. I get it. I get yeah, it. Then we did a couple months ago. Uh, let me, let I me, mean, there's a big difference. My, my, my biggest takeaway from Kirk's comments were more than anything else, and I listened to it, listened to the whole thing, is that he was just essentially trying to say, I'm part of that group that's not living in fear. I'm respectful to the others that are, and he didn't say anything about not wearing a mask. He wears a mask. He's not the, you know, he's not the asshole in Walmart or Target that's, you know, claiming, you know, he's got a constitutional right to not have to wear a mask. That's not what he was doing. He wasn't making it political. He was saying, look, there are people that are very afraid of this. I'm in the group of people that I'm living my life. I'm not in fear of this, but I'm respectful to those that are. That to me was the overriding theme to his remarks yesterday. But again, I don't think he should have said it as a quarterback of the team, as a you know, leader, a perceived leader, and he should have been much more aware of well, wait a minute. I should act as if I'm much more concerned about this because if I get it, I'm going to be out. If my teammates get it, we're going to be out for a week or two, and that could impact the team in the season. Like That should have been part of what he said, but it wasn't. I think what he was just trying to say is, like a lot of us and a lot of you that are listening, you know people who have been living in a very angst-ridden state for six months, and you probably know plenty of people who haven't been. The people who haven't been, they're not out there you know, being disrespectful. You know, Maybe some are. I don't know those people. Um, uh, but you know, I've told you, Tommy, like I've got young boys. They're living their life. You know, they're going out at night. They're back at school. You know, one of them's back at school. They're, they're working. You know, are they, do they understand the risk that they, of coming back into the home and getting me or my wife sick and what that would mean? Of course they do. And so they, you know, to, to, to the degree that a 20, 21, 22-year-old, you know, can be disciplined and wearing a mask and social distancing when they're out with their friends and they're drinking and they're having a great time, I don't know. 
But, uh, you know, I can tell you this. Our family isn't the family that's staying inside, you know, and living in fear. You go to work. I go to work. Um, I'm, but, but, and I think that's what Kirk was saying. He's in that category of he, it's not, it's not driving his life right now. I think you're giving him way too much credit. I think this was just the Jesus talking. I think this is all related. I do. I think it was, if I I think there was some of that, I will agree with you on that. I'll agree with you on that. I think it was the whole point. Um, I think it was the whole point that we have, that man has no control over what God has wrought. I think that's what this was all about. Mm. It was all about his God and okay. Jesus and his religion. And you're giving him way too much credit. All right. Well, he, there is no doubt. And, you know, he is very, very religious. Um, and there has always been a sense that, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to serve the Lord and I am here to, you know, and, and, and a sense of not necessarily being able to completely control, you know, everything, um, fate wise. Right. Um, speaking, speaking of not living your life in fear, uh, Beast Tommy is making a comeback. What? Beast Tommy, me. Oh, Beast Tommy. I'm heading down. Oh, you're heading, heading back down to the beach? Hobbit Beach on Sunday for four days. There you go. You're living your life. Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and, I, and in October, we're going to the beach again. You know what? God, it's such a nice place to be, and I haven't been once. Um, not down it's to Bethany or Hub. I know. I love it. I love it. Hey, um, I have a quick question for you to end the show. Uh you don't have a blue check mark on your Twitter account, nor do I. How is that possible? Well, they stopped giving them out apparently about two years ago. But that's not true, because there really? are other people that continue to get them, and so there's some sort of backtrack way into getting a, a, a blue check mark. Now, I'll, you know, it's never consumed me. It came up this morning on the radio show. I forget how it came up. Um, but but I know that there is some benefit to having a blue check, especially if you're in the media, because what it means, I think, you, you may correct me on this, but if you're, for example, I put out a tweet yesterday when the Haskins news came out, and I just said, Haskins is going to be good. And I added Washington NFL, you know, the, the team. And I don't know, it got 85 responses, 115 retweets, and uh, 1,200 likes, okay? All, typically, you know, if you say something short, brief about the, the football team, at least for me anyway, those are the things that get the most reaction. But right. I, but I, was, but I, I forget how it came up, but there are so many people in our business that have many fewer followers that have blue check marks. Well, how do we get it? Oh, uh, by, by the way, my uh, I was getting to the benefit is that sort of tweet that had a bunch of activity would have been like if you searched uh, Dwayne Haskins, it would have been included in all of the tweets that were talking about Dwayne Haskins. There, you'd have a much better chance if you had a blue check mark of getting into that group. Okay, so somebody out there listening. Needs to work on this for for our show. Yeah, we need blue check marks. Now, some of you people out there have to be resourceful enough or connected somewhere in Twitter 
to help us out here. I did try about a year ago, um, maybe even more more recently than that. I did try by going through Twitter, and they 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 had shut it down. They said they're not doing that process right now. And, and then, you can't get in touch with anyone at Twitter. It's impossible. Impossible. And then, you know, I, I, that that night when I started, you know, going down this 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 hole. I watched there were a couple of YouTube videos on how to, you know, get how to get a blue check mark, but they were all advertised. It was almost like these guys were selling advertising because they knew they'd have so many views and they essentially didn't tell you anything. So I don't know, like I, there are people in, in our business that have fewer followers than we have and some have more. Um, that have blue check marks, and I know that being a media member with even a limited profile media-wise y- used to be one of the key criteria to getting it. When I, if I, if I recall from reading, how you get one? Like I'm looking right now at just the guys from the radio station. Actually, Zabin doesn't have a blue check mark. He has fifty thousand follow, fifty-one thousand followers. Yeah, you have a lot more than me. I have seventeen thousand, like three hundred. Brian Mitchell has a blue check mark. He's got 43,000. Doc, ha- I, b- I bet Doc has one. No, Doc doesn't have one. What about Al Galdi? Does he have one? Galdi does not have one. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know what the, what the crate. I have, how many followers do I have? Hold on, I got to check. I have. 33.8 so I have 33,800 followers. I there's I, I think I think I should have a blue check mark. If anybody knows how to do it tweet me at Kevin Sheehan DC or tweet Tommy yeah, you, at Tom Lavero. You know powerful people. No, you should be able to get stop this it. done. And I, I wouldn't Come even on. I wouldn't even know where to begin. You must have a neighbor somewhere I, you, do you can know, talk to to fix this. So uh, about a year ago, when I, when I went back to the radio station, one of the people in sales and marketing said, you need a blue check mark on your Twitter account. And that was the first time like I even considered that. And, and I said, well, how do you get one? He said, I don't know. I'll look into it. And that's when I went home that night, that's when I started to look at it. I'm like, oh, they don't, they're not giving them out. They've shut down the process. And then I ended up on a YouTube video or two. And then he got back to me like a week later. He said, yeah, they're just not doing it right now. So he didn't know either. <laughs> and his job is to figure out the best way to market the people on the air. And I think a blue check mark helps out in that category. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But anybody that's got any, you know what? This. Maybe we should. Maybe we should start a red check mark movement. Can we pick a different color? Let's. Why not green? Why not let you know? Okay. Let's 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 do a green light. Uh, Although blue is my favorite color. Um, let were... me leave you with one last thing on my end. Okay. Did you see Robert Griffin III's tweet, like, within 20 minutes after Kirk Cousins' stuff came out? I didn't. Robert Griffin III tweeted, I mean, obviously, speaking about Kirk, because the timing was within 20 minutes of after the Kirk Cousins stuff hit social media. RG3 tweeted, some things just shouldn't be said. <laughs> uh... What so, a beauty! I mean, I, 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 I don't pay attention to him much, but I couldn't let this pass. So I retweeted it with a comment and a quote from him from 2014. We'll actually get a chance to play the brand of football that we want to play, determined by the players. <laughs> hashtag the movement. <laughs> you should have written hashtag some things just shouldn't be said. 
Yeah, that's what I should have done. That's fine. But, uh, I mean, can you, I mean, this guy, I mean, he's shameless. Yeah, it's... it's, absolutely shameless. Yeah, it's, it's... You know, I listened He's to... He's a backup quarterback. I listened to that interview that Kime did with him on Kime's podcast, and I told you, I said, one thing's obvious, he just hasn't changed at all. Um, but with that said, he really, really can sling it with the best of them. He's going to be in He's going to be in politics, Tommy. There's no doubt. I will, I will bet you any amount of money within 10 years, he is a congressman from some district in Texas, you know, I near Waco. Um, I think you're right. Neil in Rockville. Neil in Rockville responded to Griffin's tweet. Yeah, like all in for week one or, hey, Trent, don't say anything about me being hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or, um, yeah, there's just, you know, I wonder if he ever reads the responses to some of his tweets because they are, they can be brutally mean. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, whatever. I mean, I, I wonder, it's, does, uh, does Baltimore have – somebody mentioned this to me. I have not mentioned this. Somebody mentioned to me, I don't know, a month ago, a Ravens fan friend of mine, and he said, I don't know if Griffin's even going to make the team this year. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I thought they really like him. He said, they really like Trace McSorley. And I said, I thought McSorley was like a – punt returner and they're using him as a wider he said they're using him everywhere but they like McSorley so I don't know they kept three last year yes they did they did but now McSorley is a year older and maybe they like him as a backup I mean actually I mean to me Griffin's the perfect backup for Lamar Jackson you know, as long as I'm, I'm assuming that he obviously committed to playing the way Lamar Jackson plays, or you know Harbaugh and Greg Roman wouldn't have him around. But he's—I'd he, be surprised if he's cut. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I would I, too. I would think he's—he still—he still has some trade value. I would think. No, even. no trade value. As a backup? Nah. Okay. I don't know. Maybe as a backup. I mean, no one. I mean, if Baltimore hadn't signed him, he'd still be out of the league, probably. Yeah, probably. Um, but but Jackson's the perfect guy for him to back up, and you know, before he gets hurt again, he can give you that position. You know, he can give you more than competence at that position playing football that way. Um, yeah. Anyway, all right. Uh, tomorrow. Uh, I will be doing a podcast tomorrow, um, and there may even be a smell test tomorrow. I haven't really looked at the board yet for football yet, but I'll look at it, and we'll do something tomorrow as well. All right, Tommy, thanks. Okay, boss. All right, everybody, uh, have a great day, great evening, back tomorrow.